This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's not the kind of ranking a state wants, but Colorado has one of the highest suicide rates in the country. This is a story we've been covering in depth. The rate is especially high in the southwest part of the state. Kirk Sigler is a national correspondent with NPR and covers the divide between urban and rural America, and he has spent some time out on the western slope to see how folks there are handling this problem. And hello again, Kirk. Uh, good morning, Ryan. How are you? Not not uh, bad. Thanks for being with us. There are a lot of places in the West struggling with a high suicide rate. Why did you choose to focus on that part of Colorado? Well, we, I had been following, uh, as I do, a bit from afar, uh, just by virtue of my beat and it being such a vast area, that the school district there in particular in Grand Junction had uh, had been dealing and the community had been dealing with a spate of suicides, teen suicides in the 2016 and 2017 school year. So we knew it was on the radar. Um, we had also uh, commissioned a poll or have been working on a poll uh, in conjunction with Harvard um, on more on issues in rural America more broadly. And one of the things that came out of it, which may not be a surprise to you or many of your listeners, is that suicide, uh, a majority of the people surveyed, you know, ranked suicide as one of the big issues uh, in their communities. And mm-hmm. that, in fact, rural Americans are more likely to know someone who's been directly affected by it. So that was what brought us over to the Western Slope. All right. So Grand Junction is in Mesa County, and the public health department there finds the suicide rate is double the national rate, and there are higher rates of suicide hospitalization in Mesa County compared to the rest of Colorado. Uh, what's going on? How is the community in Mesa County responding to these trends? Well, I should also say, I mean, we could have gone to any county in the rural West, quite frankly. This mm-hmm. is a problem that is affecting so much of this region. In fact, it's been dubiously uh, dubbed the suicide belt, that part of the country, because it's such a uh, such a problem. Um, some of the response that happened was really born out of um, hand-wringing and frustration, um, at least according to folks I talked to in the school district and students directly. When all of this was going on, in particular, there was one extremely high-profile and difficult situation, not to rank them, but there was a, there was a situation where uh, one of the incidents uh, was initially reported as an active shooter, and so all of the news crews arrived at the high school there, and in fact, it was a suicide. Um, but a lot of students were frustrated that they felt like there wasn't an avenue to talk about it. Uh, kind of the old way of thinking, um, perhaps maybe when you and I were in uh, high school, was the, you know, you don't talk about it because you're worried about copycats. They just sort of and only talk about it with certain people. And so there was a real sort of moment where there was so much frustration and students felt like they couldn't have um, vigils or any commemorations. And the district kind of sprang into action. Um, they launched a whole kind of new way of thinking and a whole sort of what they're what they're calling upstream, which is something you see happening all around the country, focusing much more on mental health and the quality of life of everyone in the community and in the school early on in hopes of addressing a lot of these issues before it even gets to the crisis of uh, suicide itself. So they've implemented a lot of training. They've implemented uh, a number of different innovative programs that, you know, we're still seeing if, if, if it's going to have an effect yet. 
You spoke with Victoria Mendoza, who's a senior at Palisade High School. And here's what she told you about how suicides reverberate. And I think that emotionally it just affected, you know, parents, uh, grandparents, anyone that really lives in this town because they saw the younger generations, the future struggling. With this being a youth issue, it has to be awfully hard for adults in that community to watch this. Exactly. But they're trying to, um, you know, we've got a lot of difficult news right now, and we didn't want to go there just to report on, you know, just this crisis, crisis, crisis. They're they're trying to focus on some um, solutions. And that's an answer to your earlier question, why we focused on Mesa County in particular. And one of those solutions is improving the lives of young people and holding young people up as perhaps role models. So um, the young woman there, a remarkable woman with a remarkable story, uh, is a uh, has battled with uh, mental health issues herself and is also working as a peer-to-peer counselor in the Sources of Strength program in the school. The thinking being that uh, kids on the front lines or, or young women or young men can, can be kind of the gatekeepers and help uh, recognize their fellow peers, you know, who might be struggling uh-huh. and may actually be you know, easier to talk to uh, than necessarily if 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 a young person is struggling with some issues and doesn't really have an outlet and, and suicide is uh, stigmatized, uh, mental health is stigmatized in particular in rural areas, that they might be more comfortable initially going to one of their friends or classmates or somebody who is seen as a leader or even just seen as kind of uh, the popular person in in, in school, Um, that this is sort of a a way in to sort of uh, help improve the lives of a lot of people. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with NPR's Kirk Sigler, who is just back from a reporting trip to Grand Junction, where he has looked at how that community is struggling with suicide and how to prevent it. And the natural question comes up, Kirk, and and this is something that some in rural America are resistant to, but access to firearms and perhaps limiting uh, access to guns. Uh, How do people in Mesa County react when you bring that up? Well, I think it's it's being more talked about it. Or it's being more talked about than it has. Uh, about three or four years ago, I was in Wyoming reporting on a similar story directly looking at the access to guns issue. Uh, and that's a tricky one for folks in suicide prevention to navigate. Um, you know, the rural West, nine of the 10 states with the highest suicide rates in the country are in the rural West, including Alaska. And those states also happen to have some of the highest uh, firearm ownership rates in the country. So I think the trick is, or I don't want to say necessarily a trick, but the, the the challenge is sort of bifurcating the two by saying, like, we are not talking about gun control. We are talking about suicide prevention. And and uh, this is not about taking your guns away. This is about making sure that your guns are locked up or in a safe place or being able to um, recognize somebody who might be in trouble or at risk or vulnerable to harming themselves and keeping the firearms away from them. This could be in the family. This This could be at the gun shops. In fact, there's a a fairly active uh, gun shop project going on in Mesa County and in other Western Slope communities trying to educate people about and and gun shop owners and clerks about recognizing some of the warning signs. But it it is a very tricky issue and one that's difficult to navigate, in particular in the rural West where, uh, 
gun ownership is sort of woven tightly in folks' identity. I don't want to sound so academic there, but it is a big part of the culture. I don't need to tell you. Uh, but suicide uh, by firearms is also a huge uh, issue. And in fact, a majority of people in Mesa County, and I dare say if you surveyed other western uh, rural counties, guns is how people commit this final act. You spoke with Genevieve Morris. She's a suicide prevention coordinator from Mesa County Valley School District 51. Why are we focusing on youth? Um, Well, youth have a super powerful voice. They have the most powerful voice, research tells us, when it comes to creating social movements and changing social norms and changing the things that need to change. And part of what you talked about needing to change, Kirk, is just the... Uh, stigma around mental health, around suicide. I wonder if you might tell us about another perhaps exceptional young person you met, maybe one who has had personal experience in their family with suicide. Well, one who comes to mind is an eighth grader uh, who's also a, you know, peer-to-peer counselor within the middle school. This starts really young now in uh, Mesa County. Uh, She, both her father and her uncle um, had died by suicide. Um, Just some heart-wrenching stories. It's not hard to find somebody who knows somebody, as I said. Uh, And getting around the, even being able to talk about it, um, you know, the rural West in particular is known as, you know, very rugged individualism, at least that's the the stereotype. And, um, you know, you just got to pull yourself up. and, And even if you're struggling, like there's a stigma around sort of asking for help. There's also not a lot of resources in a lot of these places. One thing that really stuck out to me was that uh, there's only one mental health hospital um, between Denver and Salt Lake City. Uh, there are They are adding beds, but there's only a few dozen beds there. So you also have to talk about lack of resources uh, in rural areas in particular. Kirk, thanks so but much for being with some... us. I'm, I'm so sorry to say that's, that's our sure. time for today. Okay. And we look forward to the reports coming from you on this. Glad to be here. Kirk Sigler covers the divide between rural and urban America for NPR. He visited Grand Junction to look at how that community is responding to the high suicide rate. After two of their peers died by suicide in the same week, students from Heritage High School in Littleton started a campaign last year called Offline October. They pledged to cut out social media for the entire month. Their goal was to raise awareness of teen suicide. They also wanted to stop feelings of FOMO, the fear of missing out, and to build stronger relationships with family and friends. But can abstaining from social media for a month really make a difference? We asked Sophia Stoller, a high school senior and a leader of Offline October, about what she noticed after taking the pledge a year ago and why she's doing it again this month. So the initial challenges I had during the pledge was when I first deleted the app, I kept clicking on the place where the app used to be, just totally a muscle memory thing. And I found myself constantly bored at first because I had no distractions. Short term, I ended up talking to others, which seems super insignificant at first, but totally became a habit for me. And long term, I found myself focusing more and becoming more thankful for those relationships I had took for granted. So Stoller says her social media habits changed after the first offline October and in ways she didn't expect. 
I was expecting to jump right back on social media after Offline October, but I actually weaned myself off of it and became way less addicted. I did start using Snapchat and Instagram again, of course, but I started using it way less and even got apps that counted how many hours I was on my phone afterwards because I wanted to keep reminding myself to stay off my phone as long as I could. My friends and I realized that social media wasn't the only way we could contact one another and we learned to get off our phones and spend more time together in person. I think we all decided that getting a break from social media can do a lot for a bunch of busy high schoolers. And she says there are ways to overcome that fear of missing out. Well, I think initially when you get off your phone, you think you can do it and you hop off social media and then you realize you have no idea what to do next. So Offline October tried to plan some events so we could get those kids to go and have face-to-face contact because that's really what this is all about. And also to make people not have much as a FOMO or fear of missing out so then people could all be together. I think once people realize that social media isn't everything, they can step back and look at the bigger picture of relationships and that we can bond through tragedies and conflicts. And Stoller believes taking the pledge and purging social media for a month does make a difference. I really do think Offline October has definitely made a difference in people's lives in the past year because it shows us the quality of relationships in real life always beat out the quantity of relationships within social media. I really do 100% believe that unplugging makes a difference through mental health and positive relationships because it pushes habits that last a long time. Sophia Stoller is a student leader with Offline October. Ballots are now hitting the mail for the midterm election. Voters here will choose the next governor and decide on some big tax and spending measures. Well, this is where Purplish comes in, the podcast from CPR News. And this week we ask, is it really fair to call Colorado a swing state? Is it really purple? Here's host Sam Brash. Most weeks on this podcast, we're the ones posing the questions about Colorado ahead of the election. This week, something a little bit different. We're answering a question from one of you. I'm Jonas Rosenthal. I'm a sophomore at Denver Jewish Day School. I'm 16. Guess that's about it. Jonas contacted us through our Colorado Wonders Project. It's a new CPR effort trying to explore the state one question at a time. And you contacted us with a question about Colorado politics. Can you go ahead and say what that question was? Yeah, the question was... Is Colorado still a swing state? Why is someone too young to vote even wondering about something like this? Well, for Jonas, this came up as he reflected on his earliest experiences with politics. If I recall correctly, in both kindergarten and in fourth grade, we had mock presidential elections. We went into the closet and filled out a ballot. Let's see, I remember the ballot was on green paper and had the two candidates, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama and John McCain and Barack Obama. Obama saw mixed results in these two elections. He won in kindergarten, but lost in fourth grade. But when it came to either these two classroom elections or the real deal, Jonas had the feeling that Colorado was up for grabs. And I do remember sort of vaguely at the time that Colorado was important nationally. Lots of politicians visited, there was a ton of ads on the air. 
And he says it just didn't feel the same in 2016. Like, there was a bit less attention, a bit less coverage on Colorado. It seemed like it didn't occupy so much of a national spotlight. Sure, the candidates campaigned here, but pundits talked about Colorado as all but a sure bet for Hillary Clinton. And she ended up winning here by about three points. Two years from now, Jonas will be eligible to vote, and he's not sure what to expect. I want to know what I should be looking for, if I should be looking at Colorado politics from the perspective of a swing state voter or from the perspective of, say, a safe state voter. I want to know what sort of policies I can expect Colorado politicians, both in the state and nationally, to advocate. And I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. And it's not just Jonas asking this question. This is something I wondered ahead of launching this podcast. I mean, this is probably obvious, but it's called purplish because Colorado isn't red or blue, but purple. It's in the middle. It hosts competitive elections. But is that label even true anymore? And this is about more than our branding. Competitive elections help consultants sell advice, TV stations sell ads, journalists like me grab your attention. And it arguably helps voters, too, says Seth Maskett. He's a political scientist at the University of Denver. It basically means the state party, the national parties, um, will devote a lot more attention. They'll devote a lot more resources. There'll be a lot more media attention on those contests. Uh, That usually stimulates voter interest and voter turnout. In fact, Colorado has among the highest voter turnout in the country. Some of that may have to do with the state's mail-in ballot system, which makes finding a stamp the hardest part of voting. But it can't hurt that voters here feel like their voices matter. So this week on Purplish, how purple is Colorado really? And are our days of occupying the political center and the political center of attention numbered? There's a narrative out there about Colorado's political leanings, and it goes something like this. Once upon a time, Colorado was a reliable Republican state, and it pretty much stayed that way through the beginning of this century, when it voted for George W. Bush twice. In the Rocky Mountain West, color the state of Colorado red for President George W. Bush. But that started to change after 2004, when younger, more educated people started moving to Colorado. They created an opportunity for Democrats, who seized it. With profound gratitude and great humility, I accept your nomination for presidency of the United States. Obama accepted the Democratic nomination in Denver on a stage midfield at Bronco Stadium before winning the state in 2008. And he won here again in 2012. From battleground states in the West, one of the more closely watched was Colorado. And just as he did in 2008, President Obama took that state home. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton dominated the polls in Colorado. Media outlets started declaring that the state had fallen off the electoral map. To celebrate all that Colorado is, it's also time to talk about what Colorado isn't anymore. A swing state. There were numbers to back that up. Ahead of the 2016 election, Democrats outpaced Republicans among registered voters in Colorado for the first time in three decades. And on a night when Trump won the Electoral College, 
Colorado went for Clinton. We have another projection right now. It is a projection for Hillary Clinton as the state of Colorado. In this story, 2016 supposedly marked a kind of arrival for Colorado on a journey from red to purple to now light blue. But some people aren't totally sold on this supposed tale of political transformation. Sam breaks it down further after a break. This is Colorado Matters and Purplish from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. More now from Purplish, the podcast from CPR News focused on Colorado's political identity. So how does being a swing state, if we still are one, affect local, regional, and statewide decisions? The conventional wisdom is that we were a Republican state prior to 1990 or so. This is Tom Cronin, a professor of political science at Colorado College. He wrote a book about Colorado state government with a bright purple cover, and it's called, wait for it, Governing a Purple State. That We did have a string of Republican presidents uh, win. Nixon won two or three times, Ronald Reagan won twice, George H.W. Bush won the first time he ran, and George W. Bush ran and won a couple of times. But even while Colorado appeared red on the presidential level... This state actually has had more Democratic governors than Republican governors. In the last 44 years, just one Republican has won the governor's mansion in Colorado. And as for the idea that Colorado is a light blue state today, Cronin doesn't buy it. If you add up how we've done in 1990 to the present day... We're exactly in the middle, so we're about as purple as you can get. Cronin keeps an index of how Coloradans vote in statewide elections, and this barometer shows... We've seen a minor shift from the Republican to the Democratic side in statewide election returns, yes, over the past 30 years. According to Cronin's numbers, Democrats have had a slight partisan advantage if you look at the last decade, about 52% of voters. But he thinks you should only count a state as red or blue if it has a decisive 55% lean over 20 years. So Colorado, by his measure, is still a long way from being a blue state. But Cronin has noticed some changes in the last three decades. I, I think we are a decidedly purple state, but we have blue waves and red waves going on under the purple umbrella. Okay, this is admittedly a mixed metaphor. I'm not sure why anybody would hold an umbrella over a wave. But the point here is that while Colorado remains competitive as a state... We have a lot of movement, red waves and blue waves, going on in Colorado at the regional level. Cronin says Colorado's farm and ranch counties have moved farther to the right, but not nearly as much as Boulder and Denver have moved to the left. The Boulder-Denver area, which was already uh, leaning impressively in the Democratic direction, has become even more so, like a 12% increase over a 30-year period, voting for Democrats versus Republicans. 
So far, growth in the red parts of the state has offset growth in Denver and Boulder. If that changes, Colorado could rapidly become a Democratic stronghold, says Cronin. But at the moment, the real action is in suburban counties on the front range. I think those counties, uh, suburban Denver counties, have always been important, but they've become much, much greater in population. They've become more diverse. And uh, uh, I think it was fair to say that a few of those counties were counties the Republicans counted on regularly in statewide elections. And right now, uh, it's up for grabs. In places like Jefferson County and Arapahoe County, Democrats and Republicans are now evenly divided. The result is that in Colorado, it's soccer moms and minivan dads who occupy the political center of gravity. There's two very important facts of life in Colorado politics is suburbs matter a lot and independents matter a heck of a lot. If you're running statewide, you have to be able to appeal to independents and you have to appeal to the suburbs. That's where elections are decided. That's why Colorado politicians are almost obsessive about saying they're moderate. Take this Colorado Matters interview with Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. We're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Democratic Governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. How come you guys always have to say Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper? Why don't you say Governor Hickenlooper? Why, why do you want to inject partisanship into what is really just a, a normal question and answer session? Or Republican Senator Cory Gardner, who won by running as a moderate in 2014. Voters around this state had their voices heard. They are not red. They are not blue. But they are crystal clear. Cronin thinks politicians succeed by fighting for the center. But at a time of increasing polarization when both parties are moving towards their extremes, it can be hard for politicians to hold the middle ground. And many expect this year's election to be especially tough for Republicans. President Trump's unpopularity could leave an opening for Democrats this November. But Cronin thinks people shouldn't draw too many conclusions, whatever happens. If there is a huge blue wave... It would be a great temptation to say, oh, Colorado has shifted from purple to at least a uh, light blue. There'll be pundits who will say that, and uh, my hunch is that they, uh, they'll probably be premature. Republicans are not going to go away. They're gonna, if they lose a few important elections this year, I'm very confident that they will regroup and uh, be out there again two years later or four years later. So to sum up, Colorado is slowly trending blue, but it remains a purple state based on Election Day results. That said, it's a place where unaffiliated and moderate voters hold the reins of power. And that means either party can still win if they appeal to those voters. Okay, that's both an answer and not an answer to my question, but (laughs) but I feel like I learned something. This, again, is our question asker, Jonas Rosenthal, with what I feel like could be a tagline for this whole podcast. Whether or not we actually answer these questions, at least you learn something. I'm curious, too, because, you know, you really frame this question around you're going to be voting soon. Would you rather become a voter in a state that is a swing state um, and probably has a lot of bare-knuckle political fights? Or would you rather be a voter in a place that leans one direction or the other? On the one hand, I'd say that in a state that is, like, not a swing state, in a state that's, like, heavily one party, the policies I'd like would be more likely to get enacted. 
But on the other hand, I feel like in a swing state, there would be like a, a greater appeal to my vote. My vote would matter more. Uh, candidates might court my, my opinion more. So I guess there's pros and cons to whichever way it ends up. Gosh, kids these days, they're just so even-handed. All right. Thank you, Jonas. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. CPR's Sam Brash with Purplish, our political podcast. Next time, Sam explores voting rights. Finally, today, it's an exciting day at CPR News with the launch of our voter guide. The ballot is really long this election year. Important races, a slew of consequential, consequential initiatives, and the CPR voter guide will explain the races and questions you're deciding this year. So check it out at CPR.org. And today, there are new episodes of our podcast, Who's Gonna Govern? You can hear my in-depth interviews with the leading candidates for governor, Democrat Jared Polis and Republican Walker Stapleton. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is CPR News.